One of the coolest things that's happened in the last week is that Elon Musk purchased Twitter. <laughs> now, there's a lot of interesting developments. That's part of the story. But among the top is, first and foremost, the amount of money he paid for a social media platform. Do you know how much money he paid for Twitter? $44 billion. Okay, so I, I did a little experiment here. How much, so I'm, I'm trying to put it in regular dollars for like the rest of us here. So let's just say you made $100,000, right? Um, if you put 100,000 into seconds, how many is 100,000 seconds? How long is that? Well, that would only be 27 hours and 46 minutes. Okay, so if you're 100,000 air, that would, it's not bad. What's, what's a million seconds? So add that to a few, um, carry the one. You're looking at 12 days. One million seconds is 12 days. All right, one billion seconds. One billion seconds is 31.5 years. So you get a sense of the magnitude. That's just one. Elon Musk paid $44 billion for a social media platform. Of course, you have to ask, okay, what on earth would possess this mega rich dude to buy Twitter? And of course, if you're following the news at all, he is a strong advocate of free speech. In fact, in his question to the, uh, I mean, he polled a, a month ago before he bought this, he said, hey, free speech is essential to a functioning democracy, period. In other words, that's his statement, his, his claim to fame. Do you believe Twitter rigorously adheres to this principle? And of course, everybody said, no, not a chance, not even close. Censorship is Twitter's middle name. And so what Musk did was do something about that. He so values the First Amendment. He so values free speech that he bought the thing, and now he's going to unleash the floodgates. And he's promised, if you're tracking the news, when he promises to offend both the far right and the far left, whoever he has in mind. Far left is losing their marbles right now because they don't like the fact that free speech is even a factor of consideration. But you see the fact here that Musk highly values free speech. How much does he value it? Well, at least 44 billion values. In fact, you could even say with that kind of money being spent that the price that he's willing to pay for free speech is priceless. There's no real price. That's the price tag that you and I will never be able to see. But what's even more important here that I want you to see is even though we should value free speech, by the way, this isn't, this isn't about civics or government and policy, we should value free speech. That, that's, part of the Christian, that's part of the Christian heritage. There is a legitimate tolerance that we as Christians exercise toward other people, and that means that we, we are for free speech. But even more than that, something even more valuable than free speech is something that is part and parcel with being successful in the Christian life. In fact, I'm calling it the key to the Christian life. The key to the Christian life is more valuable than anything you would spend on the First Amendment or on buying Twitter, for instance. The key to the Christian life that will guarantee your success is not billions of dollars. You can't buy this. In fact, this essential to the Christian life is free, free for the taking. But it's not easy. In fact, it's harder than $44 billion. It takes a lot more in a lot of ways. I'll put it like this here. The, the key to the Christian life is faith. Faith is the key that unlocks the entirety of the Christian life. If you want to be a successful Christian, you need faith. You want to be an enduring Christian, you need faith. You want to be a maturing Christian, you need faith. You want to be a wise Christian, you need faith. 
You want to be the kind of person that people look up to as a Christian. You need faith. Every aspect of the Christian life requires faith to the point where chapter 11, verse 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Everything about who you are as a Christian requires the act, the mentality of faith. It's the key that unlocks the Christian life. And of course, if this is the key that unlocks the Christian life, and without Without this, it's impossible to please God. It stands to reason then that we should be asking the question, well, how do we grow in our faith? How do we, how do we nurture it? How do we uh, foster more of it? How do we understand it? What is faith even really? What are we talking about here? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to discuss, uh, we're going to talk about the description of faith and the display of faith. And really, we're going to break down the chapter into two pieces. The description of faith, the first three verses, and then uh, the display of faith. Verse 4 all the way to the end of the chapter, so about 40 verses or so. We need to know what this is if we want to please God. We need to know how to unlock the Christian life through the means of faith. So let's dive into this, starting at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. This is the very intro part. It's like the prologue into the entirety of the chapter. This is coming on the heels of everything in chapter 10, where the preacher is saying, look, we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We're of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's saying, I'm confident about your faith. Let me inspire your faith by telling you what it is and how it grows. Take a look with me here, starting at chapter 11, verse 1. It goes like this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by this faith, the people of old, the Old Testament patriarchs and matriarchs, received their commendation. God approved of them. God uh, showed them kindness and affection because of their faith. Verse 3, and by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen physically was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, he's saying what you now see all around you was become, has became a thing because God brought it about out of thin air. We call that ex nihilo, out of nothing God made all that you see. And we understand that by means of faith. Now, of course, if you take a look here, I want to I point out a few things on the screen. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that faith is, it looks two ways. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's looking toward things in the future. I'm assured about what awaits me, and my hope is in that thing, and I'm confident about that, but that's not all. It's not only assurance, which you'll see here, there's two words that describe it, assurance and conviction, assurance of the future, and I'm convicted, I I have proof of the things that are not seen, which is looking to the past. We read stories about all that God did in the lives of his his people, and uh, the author here, the preacher, is saying, faith looks to the future and says, I can't wait to receive that, and looks to the past and says, because of what God did in the past, I can have confidence about both the past and the future, knowing what God has done. And what's even more, when I express that kind of confidence, this is what's going to get me commendation before God. This is what's going to make me uh, approvable, uh, approved by God, my faith in Him. And if you even add on to this, you'll take a look here. It is by faith that we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. In other words, faith not only informs our our religious experience, it informs everything about how we even understand the world. I look at creation, and I don't see random beneficial mutation. No, I see intelligent design by a good God in a world that's gone awry because of sin. Faith interprets everything for me. 
It helps me see the future. It helps me look to the past. It helps me observe all that's in front of me right now. Faith is comprehensive in the Christian life. And so faith defined, or faith described rather, is assurance, conviction. These are essentially what it means to have faith. So one of the things I want to be clear about, though, is Christian faith is uniquely different than what the world understands as faith and how they use it. So I'm going to start there with you guys. Point number one, I want to detect the difference between Christian faith and worldly faith. Let's just make a quick, uh, a few subpoints under this to help us understand what I mean by this and what I think the Bible means to say when it talks about faith. We talk about faith today, it can be used in a lot of different ways. It's like the word love. You can say, I love tacos, I love my wife, I love my mom, I love my dad, I love my dog. And even though it's the same word, it has a lot of different connotations for each person it's applied to. Well, such it is with the word faith. If you look up the word faith in uh, or on Google, Google says it's like this, complete trust or confidence in someone or something. And I'd say, yeah, that's pretty good. I'd say that's pretty close to how Christians use it. Except that faith uh, in the object is what makes the biggest difference here. And that's where the second definition kind of gets closer to this. It's strong belief in God or in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. And that's where we would disagree spiritual apprehension rather than proof. In other words, those who, who are defining this, whoever they are, are saying, look, your faith is subjective to your own perception, whereas everything else, science, is objective and is not subject to your interpretation. It's a hard and fast fact of reality, whereas your faith is something that is a little more malleable. It bends to your whims and desires. And we would disagree with that. But whether or not you know it, let me tell you this, your understanding of faith has probably been influenced in some way by that mentality. In fact, there are people, and there's one guy on TikTok that I wanted to show you. You probably know who he is. You've probably seen him before. He's a pastor, pastor, who preaches the gospel <laughs> to his congregation. A lot of air quotes because I don't think he's a good pastor even a little bit. When you ask him, and you're going to see right now, well, what about this whole concept of Jesus? One way, one truth, one life. Is that even actual? Is that something Christians should believe? Or is there something more to that? Well, listen and watch this clip as he answers this question on TikTok. And notice if you can, see if you can identify the way that his thinking has been formed, not by the Christian faith, but by a worldly kind of faith. Take a listen, take a watch. You guys know this guy? course you do. No, Jesus is not the only way to salvation, and Jesus never said that. What you're referring to is probably John 14, 6, in which Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What Jesus was saying is that if you follow my way, follow my truth, follow my life, I will lead you to God. You will know what God is like by following my path. He wasn't saying you need to join my religion. And if he was, he was inviting you to join Judaism, not Christianity, because Christianity didn't exist. Jesus was simply inviting people to emulate his path, to follow his example as a way to connect to their creator, to connect to God. And you can follow Jesus's path and be a part of many different religions or no religion at all. Religion is not a requirement to know God. It's not a requirement to experience salvation, which simply means wholeness, restoration. Again, you can do that as a part of any religion or no religion. Just follow Jesus' path of loving your neighbor. Totally, totally. 100% agree. Religion, therefore, is choose your own adventure. It's subjective. 
not objective. The, the, the Christ of Scripture really did not mean what he said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And notice he didn't respond to that. He just dismissed it. It's not that, you know, he didn't want to deal with the fact that Jesus had spoken those words. He just simply said, well, yeah, that's, you're probably referring to that, but doesn't count. Let me tell you why. And notice as he responds to that, he doesn't give you any reason why. He just says, well, this is kind of the way I understand that. And that's faith in the worldly sense. It's malleable. It fits to your context. It's really largely driven by, by you and not by anything external. Really quickly here, worldly faith deals with strong wishes and hopes. It's based on something that I have a really strong desire about something to be true or real. It's independent from objective reality. It's not connected to anything. And that's because in our cultural understanding of faith and religion, those concepts are meant to be understood only in the category of subjectivism. It's whatever you want. And if it makes you happy, then I'm okay with that. As long as you're not trying to murder me or hurt my family, I'm okay if you want to be a Buddhist or a Baha'i faith practicer or whatever else you want to be. Worldly faith is, in large part, a strong wish and hope independent from objective reality. And Christians would defy this. We would say, no, 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 no. Jesus makes objective truth claims which can be tested and should be tested. Thirdly, worldly faith also is founded upon one's own strong feelings. So I kind of alluded to this in the first bullet point, but I need to make clear here. The foundation of someone's faith in a worldly sense comes from themselves. It's a place where uh, you make an assertion or a claim to reality, but the originating place is you. You define your own reality. In fact, even that statement, you define your own reality, is something that people have uttered before. Uh, last, because worldly faith is a made-up, self-serving kind of faith, it's unable to deliver on its promises. Believe in you. Have faith in this or trust in that. If it's not based in Jesus, then it's empty and it has no power to actually deliver on what it suggests. If you find your salvation or put your faith in a celebrity or yourself or something external to you that is not God, you're going to be sadly disappointed because nothing in this life is ultimately going to de deliver on its promises because all things are lacking. On the other hand, the Christian faith, again, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The Christian faith is assured of the future, but grounded in the past. It is a twofold kind of understanding here where we're looking at the future, but we're not divorced or disconnected from all that's happened in the past. We're not making uh, guesses about the future. We're letting the word of God guide us. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Christian faith is also consistent with objective truth and reality. But notice I did not say dependent. I said consistent. If someone were to ask you, hey, why do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Why do you believe Jesus is the way, truth, and the life? I think you might say, well, the Bible says, and you probably quote John 14, 6. Christians understand the world primarily through the means of God's revelation, his special revelation, and then his general revelation. Special revelation refers to the Bible. General revelation refers to everything else in creation. We seek to live consistent with objective reality and the truth that God has revealed, but that is not the means by which we judge everything. The means, the primary means by which we judge everything is God's word. God's word is the ultimate standard for our lives, and that's our grounding. So even if our feelings change, our objective grounding in the word of God is our primary source. But we don't look at that source alone and say, hey, if, it, if, if 
I don't know, the Bible said the sky's pink or something absurd like that. We're going to say, okay, are we translating it correctly? Do we understand this text properly? Is this poetic? Is this referring to something else? We're seeking to understand the Bible on its own terms and not impose scientism upon the Bible, if that makes sense. That's what I'm getting at with that second bullet point. Thirdly, the Christian faith is founded upon the reliability of God and his word. This is critical. Christians understand all things in our world by what God has defined for us. And I kind of already said that, so let me just go to this last point here. Christian faith, specifically Christian faith, is the effective means of right standing with God. Our faith, again, is everything for the Christian. It is essential to our Christian life because it's the very thing that drives us to the Savior. It's effective in doing that. It's effective in making us right with God. The Christian faith is the key that unlocks the Christian life. One more element here. The Christian faith is different and distinct from the world in that Christians understand that faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. If you put your faith in a faulty object, it doesn't matter how strong your faith is, your faith is not going to succeed. And so I have this rickety bridge here that's clearly dilapidated. If you were to walk across this bridge, no matter how much faith you have, you're probably going to get wet. Similarly, if you're walking across a bridge that is sturdy and strong and reinforced with steel, it doesn't matter how terrified you are of walking across the bridge. Because the bridge is strong, your faith however small, we'll still get you across the bridge. For Christians, our faith is not in us. Our faith is not in uh, our pastors necessarily. Our faith is not in anything except primarily God himself. Our faith is in him, and therefore our faith is reliable and strong. Okay, that's what faith is. That's, what fa that's, that's how we start the framework here of what faith is and how it works. Now, we're going to look at some of the positive examples of how faith operated in the past. Remember, uh, conviction of things not seen. Assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. We're going to see now all the people that come to the author's mind that really showcase what faith looks like lived out. And so, uh, in verses 4 through 31, we're going to kind of skip around a little bit. So let me give you the point on the front end. The author's desire is to help you grow in your faith, to grow up in it. So point number two, he's going to want you to listen to the voices of the past to build your faith in the present. He wants to give you something to hang your hat on and say, yes, these guys have done it. And because of their great faith, I can express that faith too. Listen to the voices of the past to build faith in the present. One of the heroes of our faith is a guy by the name of George Mueller. He's not in the Bible, so don't look him up in there. You're not going to find him. But George Mueller, who lived in the 1800s, 1805 to 1898, was one of those people who was a profound example of what it looks like to have faith in God. In fact, let me just give you a couple stats for this guy. He took care of orphans. He built, after raising hundreds of thousands of pounds, he built five orphan houses, which was able to sustain 2,050 orphans. Now, before I tell you how many people he served over the course of his life, let me also tell you this. He never borrowed one cent, and he never let anybody know that he needed money. How did he get all that he needed to support this? He prayed for it, and God delivered for him over and over and over again. And over the course of his life, he was able to serve 10,024 orphans. He's the kind of guy that you're going to want to read his story. Trust me on this. Let me tell you one story that, that he writes about. 
It was a cold and dreary day. George Mueller had looked in the kitchen, and alas, there was no food. No matter where he looked, there was nothing, and there were tons of hungry orphans who were just waiting to be fed. And so he prayed. He prayed and asked God to provide what he had not, food and milk, something. And so he goes out to the commons area with the orphans and says, Orphans, we're going to pray and thank God for our breakfast. Now notice, as I said, there's no food. And so he leads the orphans in prayer. And he begins to thank God for his provision of breakfast, which he does not have yet. Did I make that clear yet? He has no food. When he closed in prayer, it wasn't but a few moments before he heard a knock at the door. Opens the door to find the baker, who says, George, I, I don't know why, but God woke me up in the middle of the night and impressed upon me to make you guys bread. And so I have a truckload of bread to deliver to you. And George, of course, welcomes him in at the same time thanking God and says, hey, come on in. It wasn't too long after the baker left that yet another person knocked at the door. That subtle knock was able to help him see, lost my words there, that subtle knock helped him open the door to see, guess who? The milkman. George, my truck broke down in front of your orphanage here. Would you mind taking all this milk off my hands so it doesn't spoil? George was happy to oblige. And again, he thanked God for providing something that ordinarily would never have happened, but he ascribed that to his prayer and God being faithful to him. George is a great act, a great, a great example of what it looks like to act in faith. And he's one of the historical people that, I mean, just read his stories, read his diaries. He tells of some amazing accounts of how God has answered him in great ways. And that little dialogue, that little, that little picture of him is kind of similar to what's happening here in chapter 11. We're to see and hear these voices of the past and help to understand what God has done through them and thus be inspired and motivated to follow in their footsteps. Verses 4 through 6. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. That's why my point is worded as the way it is, to listen to the voices of the past, because Cain, um, rather, Abel still speaks because his life lived out in faith is now preaching to us even today. Verse 5, and by faith, here's another guy, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Enoch was one of those rare guys in the Bible who was alive, and then suddenly he was gone. He never died. Because God was pleased with him. His faith demonstrated to God that he needed to be removed quickly. Continuing on in verse uh, 6, here's the commentary that I read to you earlier. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If we were going to distill some of this into a phrase that they might speak to us, I, they might say something like this, only faithful obedience pleases God. Only the kind of obedience that has the quality of being done in faith is the, is the obedience that pleases God. Now, here's an important factor for you, young person, because you are, presumably, many of you, professing Christians. And for all of us, we have seasons of struggle and doubt, and we're just going through the motions. What we need to understand here is that faith in its fullest operation 
means that even in our hard days, even when we're not feeling it, when we offer to God our obedience as an act of faith, God is pleased with that. Conversely, if we're just going through the motions, if we're just walking the old lady across the street, we're just doing it because we have to, I think I could say God is not pleased with that because God doesn't want our obedience, at least not all by itself. God wants your heart. God wants your trust. God wants your love. God wants you to depend upon him for your righteousness, not on yourself. There is a difference between obedience and obedience from faith. If you're feeling like your walk with God is heavy and is a struggle and difficult, maybe it's because you're not walking in obedience that is full of faith. Maybe you're just walking in obedience and it's drudgery. It's heavy. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. You, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's the quality of what our faith should look like. For the Christian who is obeying by faith, obedience is freedom. Obedience is access, not drudgery, not difficult, not overly difficult. Verse 7, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Think about this. God tells Noah, hey, it's going to rain a lot, and I'm going to flood everybody. I'm going to kill everybody, and I'm going to spare you. I want you to make a boat. (laughs) It took Noah a long time to do this. And for however long it took him to build this boat, I'm sure everyone who saw him would have said, what an idiot. You're at dry land. Why are you building a boat here? And I'm sure... Over the course of time, it probably grated on Noah's, on Noah's flesh. Like these people just continue mocking him. And I, I don't know, maybe he's paying some of them to help build the boat at some point. But he's building a boat on dry land. There's no water to be seen. And God's saying, this is what I want you to do, Noah. It's not going to make sense to a lot of people, but I'm telling you what to do. Do it. And Noah, to the contrary, I mean, to the contrary, all that were around him, he's doing what God wants because he feared God. He trusted God. And in fact, take a look at this too. Here's something to notice. His whole household benefited from his faith. I don't know who you are or what situation you're in right now, but maybe God has you in your situation, in your household, so that others are benefited by your faith. I don't know, but this is something interesting. God preserves Noah and his family through Noah's faith. What an interesting thing to think about. If Noah were talking to us today, maybe he might say something like this. Faith takes action in response to God's word. The kind of faith that God wants from us, that he wants to establish in us, is a faith that responds to what his word says. So tonight, when you guys go through the word, maybe you need to respond to it right away. Rather than taking your time, rather than just kind of saying, oh, maybe I should or shouldn't, maybe God wants you to read and obey. I think Noah could get on board with that. In verses 13 through 16, It says this, and let me just quickly catch you up here. We're skipping a few verses. The few verses in between here talk about Abraham and Sarah being, uh, having faith in God, even though Abraham, you know, he was old, Sarah was old, and yet they expressed faith to God. And then he says this, uh, Abraham and Sarah all died in faith. These guys died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They could see in the distant future what God was going to do. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they knew that this promised land was not their home. Their children and all the blessings that God promised them was not the end game. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. That is, if Sarah and Abraham missed their homeland, they could have went back to 
to their old stomping grounds, but they didn't. They were looking for something beyond this. Verse uh, 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I wonder if Sarah and Abraham might say that faith works with the very end in mind, the finality of all things, the eternal mindset, we call it. Sarah and Abraham think about not only the near-term benefits of their obedience, but the long-term, eternal-term benefits that come with obedient faith. They were, they were willing to lose everything in this life in order to gain everything in the next life. Young person, let me tell you this. You are tempted to be short-term-minded. You're tempted to only look at the 70 or 80 years God gives you here. You're tempted to preserve the youthfulness that God has granted you in this stage and age in, in your life. Let me tell you, the better thing for you to do is to invest yourself in serving King Jesus, who is going to reward you far more than anything you would get in this life if you're willing to trust him. Faith works with the very end in mind. And as you, as you just read, Abraham wasn't thinking about going back. There's this old hymn, this old song. Um, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Remember the whole book of Hebrews, the author's point is to encourage him not to quit on Christ. Abraham's a good example of this. And so he's essentially saying, hey, don't turn back. The faith that you have, cling to it. Young person, don't turn back. Trust Christ. He's worthy. Cling to him. And as we sang tonight, he will hold you fast. In verses 23 through 28, you have the accounts of Moses. I want to point your attention to verse 27, though. It says, By faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, because he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And to put it more simply, Moses didn't fear Pharaoh because he feared God. Moses was able to endure this powerful person because he knew that a more powerful God stood behind him. Moses was leaning on God. In fact, I wonder if Moses would say this, faith fears no one more than God. Faith that is really in operation in your life says, I care more about what God thinks about me than what anyone else does. I care about what people think about me. And there is a healthy care. I, want, I don't want to smell. I don't want to have teeth that stink or whatever. I care about those things but I care most about what God thinks. I care most about what God thinks. And, and maybe your faith isn't there right now. Maybe you care a whole lot about what your peers think about you. Moses would encourage you, it's better to suffer reproach for the sake of Christ than to be exalted by every human being on the planet. It's better to be lowly in God's kingdom than to be exalted in the earthly kingdom, which is passing away. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Why? Because it's passing away along with its passions and desires. This world is fleeting and fading, and it will not endure. Faith fears no one more than it fears God. In verses 29 to 31, it says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, Israelites. God miraculously delivered them. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And just think about that. These are weird situations here. Think about that. If God said to us, hey, guys, I want you to cross the Atlantic. Pastor Rod's going to lead the charge with the staff in hand, and we're going to cross the Atlantic on dry ground. And I said, come on, guys, we're going to go across the Atlantic, which means we're going to have to walk across the United States first and then go 
out. So follow me. We're going to walk on dry ground. You're probably going to be a bit skeptical. And I would understand. God tells them to do this. And if that weren't strange enough, on top of that, when Joshua is leading the people into Jericho, God says, march around the city. Really? And then on top of that, God says, hey, don't make a noise. On day seven, I'll let you make a noise. But before that, just walk around quietly, taking a prayer walk. Weird. Strange. And my point in highlighting those two odd accounts is that sometimes, and perhaps often, God calls you to be obedient, and you may not fully understand all that he's wanting you to do with that. You may not understand what he's up to and having you obey commands that to you might seem like, why would I do this, God? And yet God, in his word, over and over again says, trust me. Do what I'm saying. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. And all these things you, you see here that uh, these are ordinary people. The Israelites were ordinary people. Rahab is a prostitute and a Gentile. And here she is in the hall of faith, ordinary person. It reminded me of Ephesians 3, specifically the first part of verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, God can do far more with you, ordinary student, than you realize. I wonder if maybe they might say it like this. Faith can do extraordinary things with ordinary people. Those who are willing to trust God, obey his word, and let him lead them. God can do extraordinary things through you. One of the things I love about Gen Z is that you are adamant about making a difference in the world around you. If you want to have the strongest, most impactful difference you can have, let it be because you have faith in God and follow his leadership. Take bold risks for the sake of Christ. Do something that you know is a bold step of faith and let God do great things in your life. You could be as ordinary as vanilla and yet God could make you as extraordinary as brown sugar. I don't know why those two things just came to my mind, but that's it. God can do extraordinary things through you. That's all I'm saying. Person who is submitted to God, trusting him in faith, can do extraordinary things if you would but let him. I told you a little, bit, a little bit about George Mueller. If you want an injection of faith and you want to add to your list about people that can inspire you, let me give you three recommendations that are related to George Mueller's life. First of all, this is an easy one. You could read this one in probably a couple hours tops. This is called George Mueller, The Guardian of Bristol's Orphans. Highly recommend that. Easy reading, super like straightforward. If you're into something a little more scholarly and a little thicker, here's one called George Mueller, subtitle, subtitle. That one's also worth reading. And that one I didn't enjoy as much as the first one, I'll be honest. <laughs> the first one was way, way more enjoyable. And then finally, George Mueller wrote an autobiography where he kind of tells stories about the ways that God had answered his prayers. I would highly recommend pick one. And if you're on the fence, the first one's the easiest. You could read it in no time. Worth your time reading. Ignite your faith by witnessing, viewing, listening to the voices of the past. Ignite your faith in the future. Ignite your faith in the present, rather. Okay, the last few verses. This is an important one. We're still looking at the display of faith, but I need to show you something very, very important. Okay, if you're tuned out and, and you're hearing my voice now, tune back in. This last point is important. That's all important. Everything's important. This one is kind of the, this is, everything's important. Let me just take it all back. All my sermon is important. This part, I really want you to hear though. Okay, here we go. What more shall I say? The author's wrapping up here. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, not Obama, 
of Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouth of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness, they became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and you have a highlight reel. Now, if you're a Bible student, you know that some of the names that we just read are not paragons of virtue. They're not the people in the Bible where you're like, you need to be like Jephthah. No one's going to say that. But this author does. Be like Jephthah in that he expressed faith in God. But there's more. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Elisha and Elijah both did this. Some were tortured, refusing to accept relief so that they might again, they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Pause for a second. This description of the people that were faithful does not sound like they had a really pleasant end-of-life experience. The one who was sawn in two, tradition states that it was Isaiah who died under Manasseh. He was physically restrained and they sawed the guy in half. Now, I don't know if your mind can comprehend this, but if you're laying down and someone's sawing you in, a, in two pieces, I don't think that would feel good, first of all. But secondly, I think that would be just mind-blowing to even conceive of the, the sensation that you would go through. Sawn in two, stoned. If you're listening to any of Pastor Mike's recent sermons, he's talked about the, the grotesque nature of being stoned. I mean, all of this. These are the heroes of the faith. The author of Hebrews is saying, listen, follow their leadership. Look how well it turned out for them. <laughs> Verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, listen to this, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. God was saving the best for last. And that meant that these heroes of the faith, many of them died in painful, awful ways, never fully realizing what God had promised to them. Case in point would be Sarah and Abraham. God made great promises to them, and never let them see in their lifetime all the things that came to fruition as a result of the promises that he made in Genesis 15. When I talk about faith being the key that unlocks the Christian life, I don't want you to think for a second that I'm saying faith makes your Christian life good or will guarantee positive outcomes, that you'll marry the husband of your dreams or you'll find the wife of your dreams and you're going to have three kids and a house and you're going to have this most amazing life experience. In fact, faith may do the opposite for you. Faith may send you to foreign places like Texas. Faith may have you do things that you never thought you would do, which will hurt you. Faith may cause you to lose jobs and lose money and lose a lot more than that, like your own life. You see, faith, although it unlocks the key to the Christian life, is meant to be understood as the sustaining grace that God uses to carry you through the Christian life, and specifically through trials. So 
I don't want you to think that faith delivers you from trials, but through them. And that's my third point. I don't think that faith delivers you from trials, but through them. Whenever you think about pain and suffering in the Christian life, I think most of us, if we're willing to be honest here, have to ask and answer the question, okay, if God, if God, if you're good God, why do you let us suffer in this way? Or as some people put the question, and there's no audio to this, but I do want to understand there's profanity here, so they beep it out. And you're not going to hear the audio, but let me just show it to you. People ask the question all the time. If God is real or if God is good, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, if you know your Bible, you probably will be able to answer that pretty quickly. Uh, there's no such thing as good people. That's the first thing. But that doesn't change the fact that we understand that life is very painful. And to this point, you may not have experienced any major tragedies or grief-inducing situations, but it is a question that we need to answer. It is a way that Christians need to think. We need to be honest with the fact that we do say unabashedly God is good and there is no darkness in him, there's no evil. And yet, even for God's faithful people, even for those whom God loves and places his favor upon, they are still subject to some harsh, painful, evil situations. How does a Christian answer these things? We can argue. That doesn't seem to have any help. For us, though, I mean, at the end of the day, what does a Christian do with this? How does a Christian understand that God is the source of all things? He's the primary cause of everything that we see. How does a Christian understand and wrestle with evil? Well, let me help articulate just a few things here. We're not going to resolve the issue for you tonight, but I do want to give you two things to think through. Faith does deliver you through trials, first of all, by enabling you to persevere. And it does so by giving purpose and hope to your suffering. The Bible promises you will suffer. And the Bible also says that God is the originating cause of all things. But the Bible also makes clear that even while God oversees and sovereignly manages evil, God does intend good, greater purposes that will result from your trials, your suffering. There's purpose and there's hope to your suffering. There's a reason for it. There is something that God designs to be experienced through that suffering. Three examples that you probably already know. You might know the story of Job, who suffers because he's a wicked man, right? He suffers because he's evil. He's cheating on his taxes. He stole his neighbor's camel. No. Job suffers because he's righteous. <laughs> and Job never knows that. Job never finds out that he's suffering because he's righteous. He kind of throws his hands in the air and he, he laments his position. His friends cry with him for a season. And then eventually God steps in and says, Job, what are you doing? Who are you to charge me? I mean, stop asking questions. I mean, stop. Just stop. Who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Job, chill, man. I, you're not God. I am. And God proceeds to ask him a series of question upon question to say, where were you when I created this? Where were you when I did that? Where were you when I did all these other things? And Job's like, I guess I wasn't there. I don't know. And God's essentially saying, look, if you can trust that I made everything and I've done all these good things, can't you trust me in this situation? Job learns a lesson. 
You might remember in Genesis, the latter few chapters here, Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. He's accused of rape. He's put in a prison unjustly for several years. And then he's forgotten. Finally, at the right time, God exalts him and, and allows him to be the tool by which he saves the promised, uh, the, the Israelites, God's chosen people. At the end of his story, his brothers approach him and they beg him not to hurt them. Their father just died and they say, Joseph, please don't hurt us. Dad said to take care of us. Please don't kill us. And Joseph says something remarkable in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, that many should be kept alive even to this day. Joseph recognized in the account of his life, as he looked at the evil events that took place in his life, he said, you did these evil things. God, in that same act, was intending good things to happen. So it's not okay that you did what you did, but I'm trusting that God accomplished his good purposes through the evil that you committed. Two wills, two purposes, God's purpose wins. And of course, the greatest expression of this, the, the hope and purpose to our suffering, comes in Jesus Christ who was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. God had ordained that Jesus would live and die at the hands of wicked men. And yet God doesn't say, hey, I'm going to take credit for being, I'm evil. No, God says I'm righteous in this. These secondary causes, these agents chose to commit evil. And yet it was God's plan to crush him. Isaiah 53, it was his will to bruise him. So how does faith help us with this? Faith helps us see that what we're seeing in front of us may not be the totality of it. Faith enables us to persevere by giving us purpose and hope to our suffering. That's the first thing you need to know. Young person, you're going to suffer. And I don't know what it's going to be, and I don't pretend to know how hard it's going to be for you, but you will suffer. Christian or no, if you're not Christian, you're going to suffer too. But you're going to suffer. And the thing that distinguishes Christian faith from worldly faith is that we have a hope and a confidence that God is doing good things even through our darkest days. That's the first thing you need to know. Second thing is also really important. Your faith delivers you through trials by helping you to grasp God's promises without demanding a timeline. This is where it gets really hard because God might give you a limp, so to speak, which he did to Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 12, Paul had this affliction, and he begged God, God, please take away this affliction from me. And God said, you got it, Paul. You're an apostle. You're one of my great leaders. I'm going to deliver you from this oppression. doesn't say that. God says, I'm sending you this affliction, Paul, and I'm not going to take it away. I'm going to let you keep it. And the lesson, the greater good you're going to learn from this is that my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. God may let you experience affliction and may not have a timeline specifically in view for you. Your job, Christian, young person, is to trust God even when he doesn't give you an end point to your suffering. Job had an end point. Joseph had an end point. Jesus had an end point. For Job, it was in his life. For Joseph, it was in his life. For Jesus, it was in his death. And your end point might well be your death. You need to be mentally prepared for that. That God may give you an affliction, a pain, a sorrow, an evil that could last the entirety of your lives. Faith will carry you through if your faith is prepared to think in those categories. That God does do this. 
And he may do this in your life. Cling to his promises. You know his word. Cling to his word. Let him decide what to do with your life. Speaking of George Mueller, one of the cool things about him is that he has some journal entries. And in one journal entry, he talks about how he prayed for a certain group of people. Let me, let me read to you some of this here. In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land, on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Five people. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. Year and a half. Every day. Have you prayed for anything for a year and a half straight? He did. I thank God and prayed for, for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. Five years of praying every day for these people. I thank God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. Six years. I thank God for the three and went on praying for the other two. These two remained unconverted. And there is where his journal entry ends, at least for that one. But if you happen to have access to the rest of what he wrote, you would find an entry dated 36 years later where he wrote this. But I hope in God, I pray on and look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. And then he died. Fifty-two years after he began to pray for these people, the final two men gave their life to Christ after Mueller had died. He prayed his entire, I mean, 30-plus years of praying for these individuals to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. If that's not faith, I don't know what is. But that's the kind of bold, audacious, dog, dogish kind of faith that I want to encourage you to have. A faith that doesn't look at what's in front of me and says, well, it's never going to happen. I've been praying for 30 years. If they're not coming to faith by this point, then it's probably never going to happen. No, young person, let your faith drive you to increasing, increasing. <laughs> He's persistent. She's persistent. Who is that? That's not Abby. That's persistent. Appreciate that. Let your faith drive you to persistent, doggish faith, unrelenting, to keep going no matter what. Because ultimately, it's your faith that pleases God. It's your faith that keeps you going. It's the key that unlocks the entire Christian life. Build your faith. Grow your faith. Persevere in faith. In sickness, in famine, in health, in whatever, faith in Christ will endure and carry you all the way home. Your job is to keep pushing, to keep pulling, to keep pursuing that. And maybe like Mueller, you may not see the end of your prayers until you're dead. I take it, man. That's cool. As long as God answers his prayers for his glory and our good, that's what I want. And that's what I want for you. So tonight, let me encourage you to recognize all afresh, Jesus is better. Pursue him in faith. Put your faith in him. 
Let's pray.